1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote this. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. Now, this isn't a sermon about taxes, but take this as a friendly reminder. Tax day is upon us. April 15th is about a month away. So get those taxes in. So it's not a sermon about taxes. So what does that leave us with? This is a sermon about death. Just in case anyone was under some grand illusion, we are all going to die. It's a cheery topic on a snowy day, isn't it? Now listen, you can join the TB12 movement. You can eat all the kale you want, avocado, goji berries, the list goes on, superfoods. You can only eat superfoods. And yet, in the end, every one of us will become a statistic. One out of every one people die. It's the great equalizer, right? Death is indiscriminate. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, the color of your skin, the heritage of your family, your age. Death relentlessly comes for us all. And we all know it. Ken Vale, who's a psychology professor, says this. Certainly other animals recognize that they can die. If a cheetah chases an impala or chases us, both of us and the impala are going to run away. We recognize that as an immediate threat of mortality. But the impala doesn't sit in the safety of its office, aware of the fact that it will eventually die. And we do. Right? We think about it. Despite our efforts to push thoughts of death to the fringe, we can't escape it. So sometimes it'll be the death of a celebrity or maybe a distant relative that causes us to think casually about our death. Or sometimes it's a local or world tragedy that can spark thoughts of our own mortality and the fragility of life. Sometimes it's a close call, perhaps an accident or a near accident, and you're sitting there with the rush of adrenaline realizing that was close. That could have ended it all, but it didn't. Other times, death is really near and really close. And death takes the life of a friend, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a child. And when that happens, the loss is unbearable. And all you can think about is the grief that comes with death. And in a very real and personal way, you start to think about your own death. And underneath all of this is an unspoken but deeply known reality that death is an intruder. Death is an unwelcomed enemy, vandalizing all that is good, true, and beautiful about our world. And we all know it. We all know that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not supposed to have the final say. And so to cope with death, some have turned to denial, right? The fear, the pain, the unknown lead many just to surround their life with so much busyness, so much noise, never a free moment so that we don't have to contemplate the end. Others choose the path to rebrand death, kind of give it a makeover and say, you know what? Death isn't unnatural. Death is it's just natural, right? It's just the way of it. An article recently posted at The Guardian entitled, Will All Die One Day? Isn't it? 
time we got used to it. The writer said this, death is a part of life. There could be no meaningful life without death. It is part of the same process, a fluctuation of death and life. And it is, uh, and if we cast it unnatural or even call it evil, this is absurd. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking death and he's rebranding. He's trying to say, look, it's not an enemy. There's nothing wrong with death. We may not like it, but it's just natural. It's a part of life. And in fact, did you see he one-ups it and says, in fact, death actually gives us meaning. Friends, neither denying death or rebranding death adequately deals with death. Both of them are just ways to push it to the fringe. And so this morning, we need the scriptures to help us understand what death is, where it came from, and how we can overcome it. So as we continue in our series, we believe we're looking at the lines of the Apostles' Creed because they, they're, they're helpful articulations of what Christians actually believe. And today we come to that line in the Creed that says, Jesus died and was buried and he descended to the dead. So this morning, to help frame our time, we're going to look at the curse of death. That's seeing what it is. We're going to look at the cure for death, how we can overcome it. And then we'll look at how to live as those who are cured from death. If death really has been swallowed up in life, then what does that mean for us today? So we'll look at the curse, the cure, and the cured. So look with me at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 for the curse. God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, in order to understand death, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Now, you might be thinking, it seems like all the time we are going back to Genesis 1 to 3. It seems like every sermon, in in a sense, does a touchback and looking at this story. And if you're thinking that, then good news, you're paying attention. We do go back to Genesis 1 through 3 all the time because it's foundational to our faith. It provides a a foundation to know who God is and who we are. It helps us to understand the world around us. Now, the verse I just read, Genesis 1, 31, is a summary statement after creation that God is looking back and he's seeing everything he made, the land, the sea, the sun and moon, creatures big and small, and especially man and woman. And when God takes a step back, he looks on it and says, it is very good. There's a great Hebrew word that would describe this scene, and it's shalom. Now, you might have heard that word before. It, you may, may have known its translation is peace. But it's one of those words that the trans, something is lost in translation. It's one of those pregnant words that means a whole lot more than just peace. Shalom means wholeness and vitality, peace and goodness, flourishing and delight. Or another way to say it, the world as it's supposed to be. And so as God looks back and calls it very good, there's a sense of shalom. Everything's in order. Everything is as it's supposed to be. And then we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the first mention of death in the Bible. Now, God, like any loving father, outlines parameters for safety, right? 
That's one of the, the jobs of a parent to say, look, this is what is safe. This is what would harm you. Good parenting creates healthy boundaries. And he tells his children, hey, there is a tree in the garden that's off limits. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says there's a consequence to eating of it. If you eat of it, you will surely die. So God puts before them two paths. He says one is a path of of blessing. It's a life filled with meaningful relationships. You're going to have work that actually brings joy. You'll have abundant provision. And most of all, a life intimately connected to who is the source of life. Or you can choose the path of death, a life that is cursed. See, at this point, death has not entered into the domain of reality. At this point, death is merely theoretical. It's a possibility, though it's not a reality yet. So what is death? Well, one way you could think about it is it's the opposite of shalom. If shalom is this peace and vitality and this wholeness, this fullness, that death is the absence of life. It's, it's the antithesis of shalom. It's the removal of that wholeness and vitality. It's the disruption of peace and goodness. It's the perversion of flourishing and delight. Now, there's more to be said about the particulars of death, but at this point in the narrative, death is the destruction of the goodness of God's world. It's the vandalism of shalom. Now, if you read through the rest of Genesis 2 and 3, you'll find a detailed account of how sin opened the door for death to come in, right? They eat of the fruit and death enters in. They're, they're uh, tempted by the serpent and they give in to that temptation. And in the aftermath of the tragedy, God details the implications and the impact of death entering our world. Look with me at Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. To the woman... He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband. And he shall rule over you. But to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, listen, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and now to dust you shall return. Sin was choosing to disregard God's word and giving in to that temptation from the serpent to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. See, death entered in as the result of sin. They committed sin and now death is the result. It's the the curse. See, death chokes out life. Did you see that at the end in verse 19? We were created from dust and now to dust we shall return. God had taken the dust and, and, uh, and transformed it into life with his life-giving breath. He, he forms Adam and breathes life into him, taking this lifeless clay man into this life-filled man. But now sin and death have deconstructed life back into dust. It's taken what God has created and now it's deconstructed it. 
Paul says it this way in summary form in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is the consequence. It's the curse of sin. Sam Albury says it really helpfully. He says, God is life. So turning away from him is fatal. Sin both earns death and births death. Death is what sin chooses, what sin receives, and what sin deserves. So how can we define death? How can we wrap our mind around it? I like the way the Lexham Survey of Theology defines it. Death is the unnatural divorce of the immaterial soul and the physical body, resulting from the separation between God and humanity brought about by sin. So if you work that definition backwards, sin brings about death, and first it separates God and humanity. Then as a result of that, it separates the body and the soul. You see that? The, the, the cascading effect of sin. Sin enters in, it destroys shalom, and it starts to and it, and it, it disconnects us from God, who is life. And now that we're disconnected from God, we experience physical death. This definition teaches that death is a result of sin, and that death, like sin, has both a physical and a spiritual dimension to it. Physical death ends our physical life. So that's when our bodies stop breathing, our, our hearts stop beating. And spiritual death is the disconnection with our fellowship from God, the Lord of life. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John's talking about that spiritual death. Unless, we are, unless death is un- interrupted by God's grace, spiritual death leads to eternal death, this permanent separation from God and therefore his blessing. God is life. So to be disconnected from him is fatal. And the curse doesn't end there. Not only does death choke out physical and spiritual life, it ruins life altogether. We see implications of this in the curse. The implications of a life marked by death is that everything suffers. Everything is impacted by death. Did you see that in the text as we were walking through it in Genesis 3? Our very entrance into life through childbearing is now marked by suffering and pain. What's supposed to be joy-filled, new life, begins in pain. This gives a shocking reminder and a grim foretaste that not only will life be marked by suffering, but that it, the very end of it will culminate in suffering, which is death. See, a, way to help, a helpful way to think about suffering is that every time we suffer, it's just a reminder of death. Every suffering we experience is death in miniature form. It's a foreshadowing of our final suffering when we breathe our last breath and die. So every loss, every pain, every tear is a reminder that death has entered in and is here to still kill and destroy. 
Not only is our entrance into life ruined, but relationships themselves between man and woman and brother and sister are now marked by death. Adam and Eve's relationship will no longer be one of harmony and joy, but of strife and disappointment. And because their relationship is filled that way, by extension, all relationships are a struggle because they've now been marked by death. Our work is affected by death. Do you hear that? The thorns and thistles now are rising up to choke out the good seed that we try to sow, making our labor painful. Where work was meant to bring about meaning and joy and purpose, our work often now feels futile and meaningless. And you see this, don't you? When you watch people work or listen to them talk about their jobs, you can hear this underlying fear that they're living a monotonous existence that's just going to end in the nothingness of death. Death is an intruder, not a friend. It's not natural. It's unnatural. It's an intruder to the good world God created. And that's why we have to resist this urge in our culture to give death a makeover, to remove the sting of the curse and call it natural. Our fear of death, our pain with dealing with death are all supposed to remind us that death, like sin, does not belong here. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Death has not always been. It wasn't a regular rhythm in the garden order. It is not natural. But now because of sin, it's entered in and it's an intruder. So now that it has entered in, it is inevitable. But friends, inevitability does not mean natural. It just means it's going to happen. You can't stop it on your own. And we're so far removed now from the garden that it can seem like it's natural, like it's always been. But before there was death, there was life. There was life. In fact, the Bible explicitly calls death our enemy. It says it's a curse. So we must be careful not to call death a blessing, and death is never our friend. We might be glad and relieved to know that someone's suffering has ended, the pain they're experiencing in the moment, but that's not an opportunity to call death a blessing. The very suffering that was pain is there because death is choking out their life. Because of the curse, everything is tragically not the way it's supposed to be. And that undercurrent is meant to pull us and drive us to yearn to ask, then what is the cure? If death is such a formidable enemy, what is the cure? First Peter, let's go there. Chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Right here in these short verses, Peter tells us how Jesus cured the curse of death. He did it in three parts. First thing he did was he took on our sin. See, Jesus didn't have his own sin to die for. 
Peter is emphatically clear about that in verse 22. He said Jesus committed no sin. Full stop. No caveats, right? It didn't say he committed no sin except for a couple of things. It said he committed no sins, period. No exclusion clauses. No fine print. Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit, no reviling, no threatening, nothing. He lived a life of moral perfection inside and out. So that means not only did he do the right things, but he did them for the right reasons. His thoughts, his motives were pure. In thought, word, and deed, he committed no sin. None. And in verse 24, Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body. What that means is Jesus literally took on our sin. It's both descriptive and locative. That just means location. Don't freak out on me. Right? That's what he's saying. He bore our sin. He's describing it, and he's telling us where he did it. He took it on himself. Our sin is transferred to his body as if he had committed it himself. Think about that for a moment. Imagine the stark contrast. Right before that moment, before he took on sin, life flowed through his veins. Pure, unadulterated life without the slightest hint of the disease of sin. And then in a moment, all our collective sin was placed in his body. And the disease rapidly took over. He felt the pull, the sting, the curse of death. Imagine that. He had never felt guilt before. He had never felt shame before. He had never felt fear before. But in that moment, he experienced guilt for the first time. He experienced the dirtiness of sin. He felt the condemnation of sin. And he felt the shame that comes with being exposed as a sinner. I have felt all of those things for my own sin. And my own sin is enough to weigh me down and lead me to the grave. Now think about this. Jesus experienced it exponentially. All of our sin on him in a moment. He experienced our collective sin on the cross. Peter tells us he took on our sin. And the second thing he did was take on our curse. So if he took on our sin and death is a result of the curse... Peter tells us he died. He took on our sin. Remember, death is the curse, is the curse as a result of sin. And 1 Peter 3.18 says he was put to death in the flesh. That's what the creed means when it says Jesus died, was buried, and he descended to the dead. Now I want to be really clear here. I just said it, but I want to be emphatically clear. He, he go, before he goes to the cross, he committed no sin. And because, like we looked at a few weeks ago, he was born of the Virgin Mary and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's born apart from the lineage and the heritage of Adam. Not only does he not have sin of his own, he doesn't inherit sin. And he lived without committing a sin, which means he was truly and fully alive in a way that we are not. You are all alive right now in a way. You're alive, but you are marked by the curse of death. But Jesus, before he goes to the cross, is alive in a way that no one has ever been alive before. 
he is not marked by the curse of death. But now that he's taken on our collective sin, he became cursed and marked for death. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus died. The Bible is resolutely clear on that. I just read to you 1 Peter 3.18. Look at John 19, 33 and 34. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, a lot of times we think ancient people are stupid people. We go, they just didn't know he, he was dead. Let me tell you something. Rome was in, uh, ingenious in a lot of things, but one of the things they knew how to do was to kill people. They didn't invent crucifixion, but they sure did perfect it. Not only did they see that he was dead, but just to be sure, they took a Roman spear and shoved it from the bottom. Imagine that, going from the gut through the lungs and blood and water poured out. Water because his lungs had filled up with his own saliva and he basically drowned from the inside. He died. He wasn't mostly dead, like Prince Wesley in The Princess Bride. Do you remember that scene when Inigo Montoya and Fezzik the Giant go to Miracle Max to revive Prince Wesley? Miracle Max taught us an important lesson. There's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. Listen to Miracle Max. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And there's only one thing you can do if someone's all dead. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. See, but Jesus isn't mostly dead. He was all dead. Descended to the dead means Jesus really died. A genuine death, not a simulated one. He wasn't acting. He didn't faint. He didn't go into a cross-induced coma to be buried in a rich man's tomb to then wake up, unwrap himself from all the heavy burial clothes, push away a massive stone that took multiple men to put in place despite the fact that just a few hours earlier he had been beaten to a pulp, nailed to a cross, and stabbed with a spear through his gut to his lungs. The scriptures are clear. He took on our curse and died, full stop. His heart stopped beating, his lungs stopped breathing, there was no brain activity. If there had been one of those monitors, it would have been a boop. He died, he died. Third thing Peter tells us, he gave us his life. Look at it again, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For Christ, verse 18, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Family, by his wounds, that's where healing comes. Christ died for us, the righteous one for us, the unrighteous ones, to bring us back to God. Why do we need to go back to God? Because he's the source of life. If you want life, you've got to get back to God. The New City Catechism says it like this. Question 24, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Here's the answer. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin 
to bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Question 25, does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Answer, yes. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, God graciously imputes, that means he gives Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and will, hear this gospel, remember our sins no more. His death brings healing. His life, death, and resurrection defeated the hold that death has on you and me. The language here is sacrificial and substitutionary language. We miss that because we don't live in a sacrificial culture anymore. But the Greek word for bore means to offer up as a sacrifice. Peter is intentionally using language that was used to describe when you brought an offering to the altar to be killed, where your sins were paid for in blood. His death paid the price our sin demanded, and he died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus took on our sin, and he took our place. That's what Peter means when he says, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us back to God. Now, when the curse is broken, when death is removed, then we have access to God, the God of life, again. This whole passage, 1 Peter 1, um, 21 through 24, all the way down through 18, is a commentary and an explanation of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 was a prophecy about the coming Messiah who would bring back Shalom. And 1 Peter is saying, Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus tells us that the Messiah, 1 Peter tells us that the Messiah is Jesus. Look with me at these words, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In his wound, by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now skip down to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. Was numbered as a transgressor. And yet... He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah says, we have all gone astray and live according to our own standard. What started in the garden has continued ever since. Everyone wants to judge for themselves what is good, true, and beautiful. We've all rejected God and gone our own way. And all that iniquity, all that sin that we store up is like debt. And it was transferred to Christ. He took on our debt. He took on our grief, our sorrow, and he paid for it with his life. He experienced the full wrath of God, which is his settled opposition to sin. 
See, when debt is forgiven, it's not like it just goes away, right? If you owe me 20 bucks and I say it's forgiven, it doesn't mean that I magically got 20 bucks, does it? It means I'm absorbing the cost of that debt, right? It's still paid for. It's paid for by the one who absorbs it, who takes it on. That's what they're saying. All of our sin is like debt. It had to be paid for. It didn't just, doesn't just go away. And Jesus pays for it himself. He was pierced, not for his transgressions, but ours. He was crushed, not for his iniquity, but ours. He was chastised and punished, not for his sin, but whose? Ours. He took on what we deserved, and as a result, he gave us peace. He was wounded, we are healed. Isaiah is saying that because the Messiah gave up his soul as an offering for our guilt, many, all those who put their faith in him, are accounted, looked at, seen as righteous. It's like we've switched bank accounts. This is the transfer, the healing of humanity and the settling of our accounts. Theologians have called this the great exchange. Jesus took our sin, our guilt, our shame, our unrighteousness, our debt, our death, our curse, and gave us his goodness, his righteousness, his blessing, and his life. There's a Christian letter written about 100 years after the death of Christ called the Epistle to Diognetus. You don't need to know who he is, but he captured this truth beautifully. In thinking about this exchange, he said, oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. About 1,800 years later, Charles Spurgeon would say it this way, my hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, what he has done, and what he is now doing for me. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel, that we can be healed because he was wounded. We can live because Jesus died. You know, there was a remarkable headline this week in the news cycle. I don't know if you heard it, but this, a second person has now been declared functionally cured of HIV. It's remarkable. Three years ago, they're calling him the London patient, received a bone marrow transplant from a donor who has an HIV-resistant genetic mutation. And about 18 months ago, the man stopped taking his antiretroviral drugs. And now his doctor told Reuters, there is no virus that we can measure. We can't detect anything. And that's incredible. The potential could save millions of lives around the world as doctors and scientists work together to find a cure for HIV and AIDS. That said, it pales in comparison to the cure for death. The London patient who has been functionally cured of HIV will still die from some other cause. He hasn't defeated death. They've just changed the, the cause of death. We can cure diseases, but that will not cure the curse of death. But Jesus has. He has cured death. 
and he defeated death by his death. He descended to the depth of death and experienced the fullness of the curse on our behalf. He experienced the curse more deeply than anyone in human history, and he rose again to show that he is the source and sustainer of life. We can be cured from death because Jesus died and rose again. He lived the life we could never live, and he took on our sin, and as a result, the curse of death, and he defeated death by taking it head on, not through denial, not through remaking it, but taking it head on. And when he rose again, he gave us the life that he lived for us in our place. So let's finish by asking, how, how do we live as those who have been cured of death? If, if that is on the table, what do we do? Again, verse 24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might, listen, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Like all cures, in order for it to uh, be applied to you, you have to take the medicine or go through the treatment in order to receive the benefits, right? This London patient could go, hey, they've developed a cure for AIDS, but if he doesn't go through the bone marrow transplant, if he doesn't go through their process, the application of it makes no sense to him, right? Christ's death will be a little more than a historical fact if you do not receive the treatment yourself. How do you receive the cure? You do so, the Bible says, through faith. 1 Peter 1.8 says it like this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Jesus has cured the curse of death by dying on the cross, and now we receive that cure by loving Jesus and believing in him. We love him because why? He first loved us. It's the only appropriate response to the one who has given up his life for you. And we believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is enough. I don't have to add to the cure with my own works. I can just receive it as the necessary and sufficient gift that it is. And that, when you receive it, leads to a life of joy and rejoicing because we're filled with gratitude because of the unexpected grace of God. So that begs the question, and I think J.I. Packer frames it well. The one sure fact of life is that one day, with or without warning, quietly or painfully, it, life, is going to stop. So how will you then cope with dealing when your death comes? Have you figured out how you're going to cope with death? Have you received the only cure ever offered to totally and completely deal with the curse of death? If you haven't, then what is stopping you? What is keeping you from receiving it. You can continue to live in denial, but friends, that will not stop death from coming. You can try to face it alone, but that won't stop death from taking your life. Your only hope is to receive the cure offered in Jesus Christ, who alone has defeated death. Now, for those of us who've received the cure, how do we live as those who, as those who have been cured? Peter said it like this, die to sin and live to righteousness. That's his application point. See, Christ bore his sins in our body. He died and his wounds bring about our healing so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. So what does that mean? 
When we become a Christian, we are united to Christ so that all that is true of him is now true of you and me. So what that means is when, when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. Now that Christ is alive, we who are in Christ are alive. And we're to walk in that new life. We're set free from the slavery of sin and cured from the, uh, the curse of death. So the scriptures emphatically say, live in that new life. So let me ask you a question as we close. What besetting sin have you walked in defeat that needs to be brought to death now that you are alive in Christ? What besetting sin, that just means it's, it sticks around. It, it seems to always come up. It seems to be the one that trips you up most often. What besetting sin have you walked in defeat that needs to be brought to death now that you are alive in Christ? Because you have been cured from the sting and the penalty of death, we can actually live to righteousness. Brother and sister, because death has been defeated, you can actually walk in victory. We don't have to be resigned to sin. Now hear me, I'm not saying that you can or that you will live a perfectly perfect life from now on. We will continue to fall. We will continue to fail. And the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is abundant and plentiful. And in his love, he has forgiven you of past, present, and future sin. It's an amazing reality that we have to get our minds around. But that said, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. And we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that means, listen, you can actually say no to sin. You don't have to do it. You can say yes to righteousness. You are not enslaved to sin anymore. You can actually say no to temptation. Apart from Christ, before Christ, you had to say yes. You were enslaved. He was your taskmaster. You said yes to sin and death. But now in Christ, that is no longer true of you. We can die to sin and live to righteousness. You have been set free. You are alive in a way that you've never been alive before. And the greatest threat to your life, death itself, has been taken off the table. Death no longer looms over you with an inevitable, decisive victory. Sure, we will die, but it will not have the final word because death has been swallowed up by life. So we can walk in confidence and hope and real power to put sin to death. So brother and sister, what sin is the Holy Spirit right now bringing up in your mind and in your heart that you need to put to death? Don't wait till Monday or Tuesday. You will have forgotten 99% of what I've said. Right now, what is the Spirit doing and stirring up in your heart what sin, what compromise, what is it that the Lord is saying, you need to walk in victory over this. You need to put it to death. Seven Mile, let's be a family who encourages each other and spurs one another on to love and good works and to live to righteousness as those who are truly and fully alive.